like I have a young person that works with me. It's really sweet. And I was talking about records and we were go he was helping me move records. And I was like, oh, this is this, and this is this, is this. And he's like, how do you remember all these songs? Like, how do you remember all this? Like, you seem to know like all this music. And, and I was like, oh, well, I don't like you don't really care about music, I said. And I didn't even think about it. I just said, like, you're not, you're not like a it's like I yeah, I care about music. I like music. And I was just like, I don't know how to say this, but you don't really like, and I'm not saying anything negative about it. It's just like, how often when you listen to music, do you get chills? Like, what's the percentage in your life if you've heard music that gave you chills? I mean, the hair stand up in your arms. And he's like, that's happened to me before. I'm like, yeah, but that happens to me most of the time. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we, we drew, drew the map. map. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce to you our first curious creature. James Murphy, founder. LCD sound system. James, how are you? We've we've only met once, and it was quite quite sweet backstage at a festival. It was the tea in the park, I think. Yeah, it was. I mean, my brain has become a thing that doesn't remember. I, I can't discern festivals. I can't tell which ones they are because they are <laughs> they're they're like shopping malls. Yeah, like it could be you could be in Portugal or South America or Japan, or and it's like it's the track and the trailer yeah. and the backstage bit and then the sound of a dance tent from inside a trailer yeah. which is just <laughs> as it vibrates on the floors <laughs> but it's not even the beat it's not even a, it's not nothing solid it's like <laughs> all the, it's all the rivets in the bus get yeah. loose it's like a, <laughs> the loudest iphone vibrating phone call that never stops yeah right did I was it? Did I hear, James, that you um, always started the set with an instrumental or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I used to set up the stage and run the monitors in the beginning. So we'd set up. We didn't have crew when we started, and so like I'd set everything up. <laughs> like I'm a technical person, and I was a touring front of house engineer and a touring monitor engineer. Um, like I was crew. Like that's what I sort of did for a living for a long time. So, and we started kind of in this weird place where we didn't play any shows um and then we got this show it was like a pretty big show in london and that was our first show so we flew over and played our first show we, we never played in new york we never played around or gigged or anything like that we just suddenly had a gig in london i put together a band for the weekend a friend went and played wow and then that just kind of parlayed into show after show pretty pretty quickly we were playing festivals and we don't really have it was at the time when we didn't have them in the u.s really like that wasn't a thing here. We'd have like Lollapalooza once. Yeah. And then we went to Europe and it's just like festival after festival after festival. And so we didn't have money for a, a, a monitor engineer. We had a mix engineer. And I would, we'd play a song that had no vocals for the first 10 minutes. And I would mix the monitors. And then I would go out and sing. Um, so I had to set everything up exactly the way I wanted. Like I had like arm pacings, like I needed to be able to touch Pat's cymbal and Nancy's keyboard where I stood. I knew that if I couldn't touch both of those, and if you ever let a crew set me, us up, they'd give me a lot more room. And I'm like, I don't want any room. I'm not going to do anything. 
I'm not gonna be dancing around. Like it's just like I need to be confined by all the sound. Uh, and it's still that way. We've expanded and expanded and expanded, but what happens is like we go to a rehearsal space and I set it up. Right. And then walk around and I'm like looking and everything's gonna be aimed at my head and I'm like, okay, tape it. Right. And we roll out a big carpet and we tape it. And the carpet gets cut into into the sizes of rolling platforms and then that's it. Is it is it is this dedication or is it there's some kind of control freakery going on here? I think it's for me I just like I can't communicate that well verbally. Uh, and I'm not good at disappointing people. I don't like it very much. It really upsets me. So it's easier for me to go do it myself. Hmm. Right. When I was in an engineer and somebody would be like, sounds bad. And I'm like, what should I turn the good knob up? Like, what can I do? What do you mean? It sounds bad. And so I just do it myself because I've done those. I've, there's almost no jobs in a venue that I haven't done. I've been a bouncer. Um, I was never a bartender, but I was a bar back. I've been a bartender. You did a bartender? Yeah. One night, one night only. Yeah. No, nobody paid for a drink in Eric's club in Liverpool. One night only. Yeah. They found me asleep at the end of the night on the floor. Everybody was really happy that night. Yeah, I bet. I I have two little questions for you yes. that are both about, as an American, both about Englishness. Yes. Also about generation generational stuff. One, the English thing, I've noticed that when I read about interviews with British bands, and this is from the who, like forward. Right. I think young British people at an earlier age had a much more intense sense of the impending doom of their lives than American kids did. What I mean by that is like, there's a lot about like a 16 year old being like, I don't already want to be down the pub. I know I'm going to get a job I'm stuck in for my life at 16, right. which to me, as an American is very different. Like, Americans had a lot more time to be children. Right. I think because we had less of like a, a less of a structured class system. Yeah. Y y we didn't have that sense of like doom quite yet. It took longer for it to sink into us. But yeah. I think the disadvantage of being British and the advantage both were that you knew the doom early. Right. So like <laughs> we we were born with the doom. Right. You like, I kept. I just keep. I kept reading it. They're like, oh, when I was when I was fifteen, I was like, I know I'm going to get a job and get married and have kids, and I'm like, so I got to go crazy now. That's why I went dancing to Northern Soul and doing Speed. Right. You were fifteen, and you were like, I'm going to have a kid in a minute. I better get my party on. Uh, like, <laughs> whereas, so it's like this. The opposite in America would be like yeah. twenty eight and be like, yeah. oh, I grow up. I'm going to do something else. You know, it's funny because I see I see both sides of it. My son, you know is like 28 now is going to be 29 that revelation that like he had to do something you know different didn't come like you said till he was like in his mid-20s and suddenly it was like out of a bolt out of the blue yeah but, but for us back at the end of the 70s we did things to change things because we thought that that was a way forward we were doing things because we were like hey we don't know if it's going to be the end of the world soon and we've got to do something. So it was more, the impetus was more, well, we don't know if we're going to die tomorrow. So let's just do something. Let's just activate something. Yeah. We in the Northwest, just outside Liverpool, where it was like 10 miles down the street was Wigan Casino. 
Oh, yeah. yeah the, right. the birthplace of Northern Soul, the all-nighters. Yeah. My brother-in-law, who, you know, my sister's older than me, he told me about, they used to go down the road, these, like, white penny collars, you know, yeah. paper-collared things. And the first thing they'd do is get on the dance floor, rip the collar off, you know, like, and <laughs> fling it. And I imagine there was a bit of speed going on, but he never yeah. talked about that because he didn't talk about drugs to younger people like me. Uh, I had to find out. That brings me to my second little question, which is, mm. I have this theory about like the weirdness of the cultural moment we're in, in that like there's been more music released since 2000 than there was since the dawn of time to 2000. Like, right. It's like we're in this kind of like end times of output. And that brings me to this time like around punk starting. Everybody had, it seemed, a variety of influences, but most people seem to like Roxy music. If you met someone, they're like, I like the Stooges and Roxy music. You're like, we can do this. Like that, right. Like you could be like, oh, I like T-Rex and Bowie and the MC5 and the Stooges and the Velvet Underground. You're like, okay, great. Like we're in a band. Mm. There was something, I always find something beautiful about that, like, sim like that simplicity of influence of like, those are really dense and different things out of which like almost anything can happen. Right. When we started back in the, the late 70s, there weren't that many people doing things new, it seemed. I mean, you know, punk came along and that gave us the impetus to do stuff. But I realized a lot of uh, sort of influences gave little shades to us, like Roxy Music. You know, I hear things from them that I know that we copied, not the, the style, but the intent was there. So that, that made it a lot easier to manufacture something new rather than just go over the old things again. Two things. I think there was a conscious decision to leave behind the stuff that had gone before, the things we kind of come to you know, put music on a pedestal. Um, but we were certainly striving for some kind of uniqueness. Um, maybe, it, maybe it happened just because of uh, our inability <laughs> to recreate what we'd what we'd love to hear, or maybe it was our attempt at recreating what we'd, you know, grown up with listening to. Um, and I feel like the moment now is so intense with like how much stuff there is to kind of like wonder what you're listening to, and it's very difficult to do something I feel new because I, I had a, did a talk a long time ago in a weird way at the same time as Brian Eno. Like Brian Eno did a talk and then I was part of a panel afterwards, separate thing. But one thing he said that I thought was kind of amazing, he's like, he said it was like, it was kind of easy to be new at his time. Cause he was like, he was hearing all these like avant-garde composers, but he was also in Roxy music. Yeah. And like, you just had to be the first person to be like, what about these things together? Like, like, and everyone was just like, ah, like, like <laughs> inconceivable, you know, like, like, like there were these moments, there's these, in, these interesting historical vectors where newness had so much power. Yeah. But I think because of the churning out of, in, of music, the removal of technological barriers. Yeah. Like a kid right now can make a track with like an infinity of reverberation spaces and any synth in the world, there's no dominant context. There's no, gone is the day of like, well, records from O-Town sound this way because they had the funk, they they had these drummers and they, this was the drum set and they used that mic and nobody knew how they did that. And that's what those records are like. 
Yeah, it's true. It's true. Like the, the limitations that we all had, you know, no internet, no, no, no way to, to make the sounds that we, we wanted. So we had to kind of deal with what we, what we had. It was much smaller, I think, in, in, in that way. So therefore, it, you know, we were allowed to mature out in the woodshed instead of being under this constant pressure to get something that's going to do something and go somewhere and poke its head up amongst the uh, you know, rest of everything. Uh, sometimes limitations, they were like imposed on us, you know, just the time available. You had to get like several, you know, three tracks done, three songs written and recorded and mixed over a weekend. So quite a lot of the time, the situation dictated the way, the way things came out. So might have started off as a, a limitation of ability, but then it became <laughs> endless uh, limits imposed on you, if you like. You know, let's get it done yesterday. But I think also, like, you have, if you have these limitations, you're free to just constantly try to do something new. Yeah, it's the world because it's not easy to do. It was really hard to think of a new way to do something. Yeah, and in fact, if you go back and listen to the records like from that era, at the moment when they would come out, you'd be like, "I remember I'd get a new record by a band I liked, either one of your bands." Did he just say he loves us? I think he did. <laughs> and I'd be like, "Fucking hell, this sounds totally unrelated to the last record." Like, yeah. Yeah. Like suddenly we're like this giant swarming, like dazzle comes out. It's just like everything's like giant and reverberant and psychedelic. And before it was so knife edge and so like brittle and, you know, like what happened here? And now I go back and listen to them and they are actually in some ways also baby steps. There's, a real, there's these really through lines that make them like not such big leaps in some ways where they must have seemed like terrifying chasms at the time. The limitations, like right now, if someone said, if I said to myself, I'm going to do something completely different, what would hold, why not just all just be completely like drum and bass or, right. or like, you know, like there's no, there's no, there's no thing to, there's no membrane to push against either technology yeah. and in some ways either or culture, because what was once a very stiff and rigid like conservative culture that you push yeah. against and all you had to do is push a bit and it would right. your hand would go right through and you'd be a weirdo. Yeah. But I find now that now everyone thinks they're cool. <laughs> like yeah. everyone thinks that they're cool and they have good taste and they're, they're they, they, like, there's nothing beyond what they like. Wow. If, it seems that what they don't have is the melting pot, is the, the big cauldron. Right. I'm thinking now that most people will never experience the, the, the situation we had where we went into Abbey Road Studios and there was a, a team of people constantly tweaking the studio. Right. The, guy, the guys had endless experience. And what they were doing it was kind of going, this is not working. Let's just rip this thing out of the desk. I'll put that one in because I know it works. And then they'd end up with a, a hybrid sort of build that would got, got us through the session and call for, and suddenly got this amazing drum sound and going like, wow, let's just keep that. You know, yeah. the, that, that doesn't exist. I'm thinking, oh, well, am I being romantic and uh, nostalgic or is it actually real that we're losing something that's tangible? Yeah. 
I think now maybe there's so much coming in at any one time, mm. you know, nothing's new. Uh, is, is it that music and live performance have simply lost their appeal? I mean, I definitely think music is just less important now. Right. Like it, mm. I mean, it, it's less important to people. I mean, when I was a kid, you, you the only thing you had to, that you spent money on was music. I, you didn't buy anything else. Like, I didn't own anything else. Like, I had, you know, I got shoes and clothes for school. Yeah. And I had books. Like I had books and, you know, if I played a sport, like I could get the special shoes for that sport or, yeah. but basically you just didn't own anything. I, my, I rode my brother's, I'm the youngest of four. I rode my brother's bike. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like you just didn't own stuff. And I don't, it just wasn't really germane. Like holiday would come around and they'd be like, well, here's some little toy cars or whatever. There's nothing fighting for your money and your attention. Well, that frees you. That and frees you, right? It also defines you in a bigger way. Music was was the defining thing. Like, I have a young person that works with me. It's really sweet. And I was talking about records, and we were go- he was helping me move records. And I was like, oh, this is this, and this is this, is this. And he's like, how do you remember all these songs? Like, how do you remember all this? I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, like, there's all these records. Like, how do you remember? Like, you seem to know, like, all this music. And I was like, oh, well, I don't like you don't really care about music, I said. And I didn't even think about it. I just said, like, you're not you're not like a it's like I yeah, I care about music. I like music. And I was just like, I don't know how to say this, but you don't really like and I'm not saying anything negative about it. It's just like how often when you listen to music do you get chills? Like what's the percentage in your life if you've heard music that gave you chills, made the hair stand up in your arms? And he's like, That's happened to me before. I'm like, Yeah, but that happens to me most of the time. Like I'm from a generation where like music was who you were. Right. Like I cared about it. It was the most important thing to me. You you define yourself. It's like, this is what I listen to. Like you fucking, you listen to your bullshit. This is what I listen to. Like me and my friends listen to the good music and you listen to shit. <laughs> it was like super aggressive. Like, That's really right. It did. It did define us that much more because I don't know what, what I got from music in the, the beginning was, a, a way to transcend my my everyday existence. Something in the music, something in the lyrics came together, and it was like that moment where you read a line in a book, and it it completely changes your worldview. Just for a, you know, even if it's just for a minute or two, mm. and that's what I looked for in music. You know, every time I could do that. So my the whole of summer vacation, the whole of summer holidays at school was in my bedroom playing those records that did that for me that that helped me transcend my existence you know and so when we came to make music that's what i was looking for yeah right was anti-loneliness for me like music cured loneliness because you'd be like there are people out there and i don't mean it like i didn't think that i'd put a record on be like there's people out there that are like me (laughs) like i didn't think that but you felt it like you felt like this thing that like separated you from the people around you and the drudgery around you and like made you feel like I need to go there. When we first came to America, I remember it distinctly uh, thinking that as I stepped off the plane in New York, that everybody was going to be driving around in Cadillacs with uh, long horns on the front of the hood of the car and everybody would be bearing 10-gallon hats and things. And it wasn't like that 
at all. My fantasy was vastly different than than reality. What was it like for you, James, when you first came to the UK? I I had a great awakening. The first, I had a in my school. I grew up in like a pretty farmy town in New Jersey, and there was a trip to England, Ireland, and Scotland. And you could save up money, you could, you could raise money. So I worked like I worked in jobs. And it was like it was like literally like ten days of the the Isles, and at this time, I'm listening to an enormous percentage of British music. Yeah. I'm like, I'm going to go and like, it's going to be just amazing. When you get there, I mean, music in the streets. Like the way people feel when they first come to New York. Like, like I'm going to get to New York. There's kids break dancing on the corner and like, yeah. He's going to be walking around playing punk shows. It's going to be fucking amazing. You get here and you're like, oh. <laughs> and I, and I was like, and I, at the end of the trip, a friend when I got home was like, so you know, did you see a lot of stuff? And I'm like, no, I, I now understand what those people were making music against. <laughs> and I got there and all I experienced was fucking pubs and thugs. And like, I experienced like, a lot of sort of like the opposite of what I expected. I experienced like just the shit I grew up with, but with a different accent. Right, right. It was just a wake up call. Like, oh, it's not, you're not in the wrong town. Like, it, there's nothing wrong with where you are. Like, you just need to find the, literally the individuals. Did that trip give you the impetus for it then to to start finding those people? It was too late. I was born in the town I was from. And I was a, a, a real weird combination of not very adventurous and really dissatisfied. Okay. I didn't even, it didn't occur to me to leave. Right. Like, after I graduated from high school, with every opportunity to go to college, I didn't go. I stayed in my town. Because mm. I was going to make music. I was like, I'm not going to go to college. I want to stay here and make music. I didn't have a studio. I had a shitty job. I was kickboxing. Like, I was just really narrow-minded. And and then I finally, after a year and a half, I went to, I moved to New York. And then, right. but then I proceeded to just be really, it was the 90s and it was just a really boring time. I, I feel like it was a very boring time musically in, the, in America. So what, so what changed it for you? What got you from there to here? Well, I mean, I've been making, I put made a record in 1987, 88. I put a record out, right. um, which I manufactured myself and learned the hard way that that's like, without a community, you are literally throwing rec. I really made boxes of records that I held onto and then threw in the garbage. Like, it was like, without a community to, to like, I didn't understand that people have communities. Like, I didn't really understand how it worked because I was so alone. Right. And then New York, I was in like these, all I was aspiring to was I just wanted to go, go along. I'd been a singing guitar player and I'd been like a bit of an egomaniac. And I got, I kind of just got humiliated and I was just like, I need to just take this all down a notch. Yeah. So th the thing that links us here, which not a lot of people know is drums, right? Yeah. I had a girlfriend who wanted to learn how to play bass and start a band. And I, I was like, I'll, I'll help you find people to play with. And of course, I got 50 guitar players and zero drummers. Yeah. So I said, well, I'll try to play drums for the tryout. And I'd been in bands my whole life, but I'd never like really played drums. I knew what they should sound like. I think that helped. <laughs> well, I think it does. It's like, if you're like, I know what a drum beat should sound like. So yeah. Hmm. And so I was like, oh, so I just became a drummer. And I was like, this is good for me. I'm going to turn off the kind of like controlling ego stuff the singing guitar player in me had. I'd been a kickboxer and studied martial arts. And I was like, that was the first thing in my life that I was like, it's okay to suck. I liked being a white belt. 
And then I liked learning and growing. Right. And I think drums were the first thing to me that I was like, I'm accepting that I'm not good at this. I can accept right. my white belt status. And then mm. I'll learn a new technique. And suddenly I get my new belt. Like, oh, I can, I can open the hi-hat with my foot. Yeah. <laughs> I get a little like stripe on my, you know, like I get a little merit badge and like I can do a thing that I couldn't do before. All these things were like merit badges to me. Yeah. Proud of this development. This is all, this is psychology going on here. Totally. And, yeah. and, and I learned to be a good engineer and be like, really like I'm the front of house guy and I'll drive the van and I'm gone. I'm like a guy who's no longer the artist. I'm the technician and I'm working on my drums and, and I got so much satisfaction from that. Wow, Lol, that was good. It was, wasn't it? It was amazing. In fact, it was so good, I think we're going to have to continue this one next week. Let's continue the conversation. Tune in next time. James Murphy, LCD Sound System. Lol, it's that time of the show when we're going to answer some curious questions from the fans. Do we have fans? <laughs> Apparently so. They've written a lot of questions, <laughs> that's for sure. So we have a question for you, Budgie, from uh, Pete Martin, somewhere in the UK. Mm. And, and he says, hi, Budgie. Hi, Pete. How did you get the Slits gig? You didn't have a huge CV at that time. <laughs> right. Well, thanks, Pete. Thanks for asking the question. My first band was called Spitfire Boys. And um, Paul Rutherford, who was the singer with the Spitfire Boys, who would later become the other singer in Frankie Goes to Hollywood with Holly Johnson, who was in my other band, Big in Japan. <laughs> But anyway, coming back to Paul, Paul was a big fan of the Slits and Ariana, especially Ari Up. And um, we eventually got to do a support slot opening for the Slits. Wow. So we got to know them. We'd stayed around at Ari's mum's place on the, off, just off the King's Road, stayed at Nora's house. Nora, Ari's mum, is John Lydon's wife. Yes. But what happened was I'd moved down to London after the Spitfire Boys and I'd hooked up with a manager and Frank Silver was his name. Frank was unusually manage, managing a drummer. I was a drummer in London on my own with a manager. <laughs> <laughs> all, all, yeah, he had, yeah. all he had to manage was me wow. and my dog. Wow. And Frank suddenly quite unexpectedly got the, the job of looking after the slits. And so that's how really, that's how I got the, the gig. I, 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 I was making a bit of a slight name for myself. You know, the first thing I did when I got to London was sit in Warner Chapel Studios with Glenn Matlock, who was the bass player with the Sex Pistols. Right. So I, it was kind of weird. I was sitting there with a, probably the most well-known bass player of that time. Right. Helping him out to put some demos together. So, so I would say, au contraire to Peter... Martin, you had actually quite an enviable CV by the age of 20. He doesn't get much bigger than sitting in with, like, no. bass player from the Pistols. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. So, question from Louis about our clothes from the 80s. Where do, where do we get them? 
Where did you get your uh, your clubber? I was thinking about this the other day. Where did we go shopping? And we did quite often. It would be video shoot coming up or photo session. Right. And me, Susie, and Severin would go down to Covent Garden, um, a, a place called Flip. And it was basically an, an outlet for American clothing. I say American because it was a lot of American college campus stuff, like military, like not military, um, college marching bands. Right. So you'll see the jacket that Susie wore in, I think, the Christine, maybe not the Christine, it was one of the videos early on, um, and that there would be like a yellow brocade with those kind of brass buttons and things. And we'd find all this stuff, and it was stuff that shouldn't be thrown together, but that's what we'd put together. And then the big trousers that I was wearing in Spellbound, Mm. flying through the air and they looked like parachutes right they they came from flipping covent garden and it was all like really cheap it's a huge store yeah but you could go in there and root around all day get ties and shirts so you could look come out looking like either a preppy college jock or something or a sporty yeah. person or somebody out <laughs> of a play um but there was nothing like it the colors uh the styles they were they, right. they, it was like it, it was cut. It was all from like the fifties and sixties, probably. You know. Okay. Starting off, I used to go down the King's Road, you know, with my mohawk. No, I never had a mohawk. Oh come on, you did, you did. I saw it. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't get enough, uh, you know, stuff to keep it up. <laughs> Sorry, anyway. I said the Queen's of the Vision. <laughs> <laughs> the hair, hairspray. The, el- the Elnet, the Elnet, and the, sugar, the soapy sugar water. Yes. Yes, the Elnet. Didn't have enough of that, but no, I used to go to Johnson's at the bottom end of uh, the King's Road. I'd get my leather pants because they had leather pants, and they had leather pants that um, you that were lined. And if anybody who's ever worn a pair of leather pants, you need to have ones that are lined. If they're not lined, don't buy them. I made that mistake once. We were just about to go on our first American tour, and I thought I'd better buy a pair of leather, new leather pants to look cool. And we've got to clear this up here. That, like pants mean a little different where you're sitting right now and where I'm sitting. Okay, uh, English to American leather pants are what you you were very close to your um, essentials. Yeah, pants in America mean trousers. Ah, okay. you see, over here in Europe, you'd be wearing leather underpants. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh, and in London, you probably would be. Yes. So I got me leather trousers. Go on. From from Johnson's, usually, because they had nice lining inside, so they would move well over your skin. <laughs> but for this American tour, I didn't have – it sounds all wrong, doesn't it? But <laughs> I, for this one tour, I couldn't find any that I liked in Johnson's, so I, I bought an inferior pair from some other – you know, Covent Garden guy, and they didn't have a lining in, which was okay in the cold weather in London. But I got to New York, and it was the middle of the summer, and it was very hot, and I couldn't bend my knees. So I couldn't walk upstairs or anything. I had had to sort of remove them to go anywhere, which was not good and impossible to drum in them as well. Hasn't been been the same since. Well, no, you couldn't even take them off because they just stuck to you everywhere. And from that day to this, you, you learned how to play the drums standing up. Yeah, right, exactly. The other the other place we went was um, Robot, which was on uh, King's Road. And I remember Robot, yes. Right, and they they were mates of mine, 
And so for our first uh, time, we actually had some stage outfits made and I persuaded Robert, you know, these guys are really good. Let's get them to make us some suits. So they made us each three suits, a black suit, a gray suit, and my favorite one, which now, actually now is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on permanent ex- exhibition, mm-hmm. blue silk one. And it was lovely. The blue blue silk suit is a nice piece of schmatter, as they say. So you haven't, have you or haven't you kept uh, any of the iconic wardrobe from the 80s? I'm quoting the question here. <laughs> yes, of course I have. I've got my John Richmond uh, jacket still and stuff. Yeah, I kept all oh, that you stuff. have. You have yeah. you got it? Uh, I got no leather trousers because they were probably about twenty eight inch waist, and there's no way on God's green earth I could get into a pair of twenty eight inch waist trousers at my I, age. Even if you could, we would look a bit dubious. <laughs> I think. Yeah, I would look very dubious. <laughs> yeah, I'm not wearing my chaps from the Leatherman in London anymore. <laughs> they were my favourite. I have to say, I gave them to somebody else. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Bol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Spare. Social media, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas K. Music production, Jack Knife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web. And you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com I love saying www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com And you can reach us on Instagram, Facebook <laughs> at Curious Creatures Official Twitter at Cure Creatures To find more of the best music podcasts visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram and at doubleelvisfm on Twitter Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2021.